Peace, everybody. Welcome to the Vital Hoops Podcast. My name is Fernando Cardenas, aka International XB. I'm your host. This is episode number 36, part two of our three part series for 50 years of hip hop. All right. If you listen to the Vital Hoops Podcast, you know this by now, but when we talk about hip hop, we, we're not talking about commercial rap. We're not talking about only the, the rapping aspect. We're not talking about sales. Okay, we're talking about the culture. We're talking about hip hop culture. So celebrating 50 years of hip hop is important to us. You understand what I'm saying? And before we begin this episode, part two um, of, of this three-part series, part two, which is Cuban hip hop, I wanted to say this because I was talking to my brother, um, you know, shout out to my brother, Booba. And um, he was telling me, you know, he's been, you know, following the show, listening to the to the podcast. And, you know, he was in New York in the 90s. He was in New York in the late 80s. You know what I'm saying? And um, he was very much so influenced by hip hop culture, by the culture itself. And he was telling me how, you know, it's important to highlight, you know, when we talk about the culture. And I agree with him 100%, the importance that, you know, all the elements had you know, the cultural elements at the beginning when hip hop is born in 73 in the Bronx, um, you know what I mean? The graffiti, what graffiti did to the city, you know what I mean? To a city that was ravaged by poverty, by, by um, you know, by drugs, you know, all this shit, all this oppression that the people were living and, you know, the light that graffiti brought to the city, you know what I'm saying? The combination between the MCs, the DJs, the B-boys, you know what I'm saying? And the graffiti, you know, how, how, how important this was, you know what I'm saying, for the people. And this is why hip hop is a culture of the people, a culture of the community. You know what I mean? So I just wanted to highlight that point real quick. You know what I mean? And once again, shout out my brother. Um, Cause this is very important when we talking, when we talking about, you know, honoring the culture and honoring the, the, the pioneers of the culture, this is key. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So like I said, this is part two of our three part series here on Vital Hoops celebrating 50 years of hip hop. And this one is Cuban hip hop, okay? We're honored to have our special guest today. He was there at the beginning, at the beginning in Havana when hip hop began. Our guest is one of, if not the first producer, the first hip hop producers in Cuba. Um, he is definitely one of the most important ones. His contribution to the culture has been extremely important. Uh, he is an anthropologist with a PhD and a professor at the University of Toronto. I'm talking about none else than the great Pablo Herrera. Pablo Herrera, peace, my brother. How you doing? Welcome to the Vital Podcast. Hey, man, Podcast. what's going on? All good. Thank you, man. Thank you for bringing, bringing me to the... Is it three... I thought it said three, 340? 340 MS, yeah, that's... Well, 340MS is my hip-hop group back in Cuba, but the, the right, podcast here right. is Vital Hoops. The podcast is Vital Hoops. Yeah, man. That's amazing. Thank you so much for bringing me over uh, and, you know, having me on. I, I appreciate it. Man, thank uh, you. Podcasts become a thing, no? Uh, yeah. It's like sort of, um, I wouldn't say platform, but it's sort of a platform. It's like the sort of medium where people yeah, communicate. No it's kind of our way to have... our opportunity to, you know, voice, you know, spread our voice, you know, in, the, in an independent way. 
you know, mm. but it's to me, it's very similar to, to my music. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you're spreading a message. But the, the thing I like about podcasting is that, you know, I can have a lot of people on, you know, people who I feel are interesting and, and whose voice need to be heard. And I mm. can, you know, share with those people. So I appreciate cool. you being here, man. I appreciate you. Being yeah, here. I appreciate you inviting me, man. Thank you for that. <laughs> no doubt. So, yeah, so we, we, we started talking. We, we're actually catching up. Just for people who are catching up. We're yeah. started, basically, the conversation started with this idea that the character of the, the, the rapero, you know, in Cuba or in Havana specifically, mm -hmm. the guys who become rapero, the MCs, yeah. they usually come from having, but the, their background is mostly, uh, for those who are mostly most prominent, are it's because they actually used to be uh, uh athletes right athletes exactly yeah. so i was actually trying to figure out the word like out of, out of rendimiento but i don't know what would be that basically high high like top top athletes yeah top tier uh, athletes yeah top tier exactly so most of them actually have been before you know uh national champions uh, mm -hmm. they've been to basically the top school of you know just ready to go to the olympics or been to the olympics already Right. So that guy then becomes the rap, the, like the MC in, yeah. in Cuba, right? in Havana, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is really interesting because it, then it speaks about it. Speaks, like obviously, we can have a, a very, really, you know, a very long conversation about it. But then this kind of person that becomes a, the rapero, becomes the MC, then uh, has this all the stamina, all the bravado, all the like the impetus, you know, the focus. Mm. To draw not only one song, but just basically draw a whole, drive a whole career, right? Right, Because, right. you know, record after record. Mm. And then also have a following, which is also really important. You well, know? Yeah, no doubt. No doubt, man. I think there's also the aspect of competitiveness, man. You know, within an MC, you know, an MC is somewhat competitive. And a lot of times we athletes, you know, yeah. uh, you know, when you become an MC, you, you bring that with you, you know, that competitive mm. aspect, you know, mm. Wanting, mm. Wanting, mm. wanting to be the best. There's also a team aspect if you're if you're in a team sport like me, like basketball. There's a team aspect, and and I can always you know uh, compare that to to having a hip hop crew. You know your group, your peoples. So you know exactly. Think, you know what I mean. So yeah, no doubt, man. Exactly. It would be really interesting to ask ourselves or ask actually ask the community where do the where do the women who joined hip hop come from, and what exactly is their background prior to becoming MCs themselves, right? That's uh, true. Because that. Because I don't, I mean, I think we, we, I think, and I've actually had that problem in the past, but I actually have tended to speak about the guys only. We do that. And I sort of figure out not to speak about the women. I think the women, like, thinking from Instincto onwards, to yeah. so yeah, I2E, yeah. Mariana, uh, the two Janet, the one from Alamar, Janet from, from Creación Perfecta. Yeah. Uh, obs you know, we should, Magia. Majority, but I, I, rather than majorities, I think majority is amazing, but I would talk about crudas first. Crudas yeah, first, crudas, right? no doubt. Crudas and, as well. And, and um, you know, Olay Mar and Oliver. Mm -hmm. and, and then obviously the group of, uh, you know, Nono and like yeah, man. ladies and, and, and Yari, like yeah, all, the, all that, that whole group. And, and where, where, do they, where did they come from? Right? So, yeah. I think that I think this is sort of interesting, but going back again, and I'm just making that quick sort of parenthesis, going back to the idea of MCs being uh, having this sort of formation as athletes. Mm -hmm. We start with Pando, who used mm -hmm. to be a you know a kayak you know a kayak champion in Cuba, you know through through Papa Records, and I think uh, just also you know uh, wrestling 
-hmm. also athlete in Cuba to Fabio Grande from 10%, who was also an athlete. Mm -hmm. But I think the, the really interesting case is one that's actually the most relevant uh, Afro-Cuban or actually Cuban rapper, uh, Afro-Cuban rapper uh, now outside of Cuba, which is not Grandi Acosta, yeah. who's actually, we don't know what kind of athlete he is. He's also an athlete. I didn't know that. What, what did... he's, a chess, he's a chess champion. Chess? Wow. Yeah, he went to chess wow. school in Cuba. Oh, so this crazy. is, you see that's what I mean? Dope. So this is... Yeah. This is this, so you see what I mean, like the configuration, the mentality, the strategizing. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, that so makes sense. I think it's this will be a whole. This, this yeah, this will be a whole, whole different podcast, but it's interesting, <laughs> no doubt. It's interesting, man. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's let's go back. Let's get right into it. First of all, first of all, let's shout out to all those great artists you just mentioned, man. Much respect. A lot of them are my brothers and sisters. Oh, I want to shout out to all of them, man. So. No doubt. Yeah. But um, yeah, let's I, go back. I, 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 I should say before we go on, I forgot to mention Sexo Sentido. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Right? Wife, we're, yeah. We're from, exactly. From from the start, they were part of the hip hop yeah, of course. world and right, you know, you know right along mm -hmm. everything. So, you know, they, they repped really hard since yeah. the beginning. Well, I know and, I know that they didn't come from 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 sports, though, but they they, they were right into music since they were very but, little. You exactly. Know. So yeah, Sylvia, yeah. Sylvia, yeah. your 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 My your mother-in-law, yeah. she guided a lot of us. Of Not course, yeah, I know, I know, I know. Into I know. understanding yeah. how to do the music and how to basically, you know, take on no doubt. You know, Cuba's sort of cultural sphere. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's um something that's super important. Yeah, very important. that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No doubt, man. Yeah. Shout out to shout out to Mama Sylvia. <laughs> mm. Yo, so so listen, let's let's go back real quick, man. Let, let's we're gonna get into everything but so they understand a little bit the impact that you know that you brought to to cuban hip-hop a little bit talk a little bit about yourself man you know growing up you know uh, where you grew up um how it what how it was like you know for 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 a black man growing up in santo suarez we're talking uh what 80s no we're talking about you know i, I was born 70s, in Parraga. Uh -huh. i was i was born in Parraga in 1960s 1967 okay Okay. Okay. Um, and and uh, you know I'm we come from an, you know um, a very poor, I think a very poor Afro-Cuban background. Mm. Um, you know uh, my my father's side everyone was you know my my my, my grandfather was uh, was a musician and he made um, uh, Afro-Cuban instruments. Wow. My dad's father and then my my his his mom, uh, she was just a, a, a washing lady. You know, okay. La yeah, yeah. Uh, we don't know the talents that this woman may have. We, all, all I know is that her trade was basically washing clothes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they lived in Parraga. This is where I was born in Pinto, number, number eight in, okay. in Parraga. But then uh, on my mom's side, her father was, uh, was a construction contractor okay. um, uh, in Havana. And they, they were a hundred percent nation nation blacks so these were a hundred percent Igbo people in living in Cuba wow and I know oh. and I know this but Igbo yeah I know yeah. this because I am 62 percent Igbo so if okay. I'm 62 percent Igbo into 2023 that means that my grandfather was like these guys were full yeah no doubt no, no mixture doubt. you know a hundred percent Igbo etc right yeah, yeah. And my dad's family they're, they're a lot more mixed Okay. Okay. Yeah. You, you know, um, I heard a little parenthesis, you know, you know, I heard, um, I heard there was still like 
a family in Matanzas. You know, my, my father, my father was from Matanzas, but I heard there was yeah. a family in Matanzas that was still like, you know, 100% like, you know, they would speak the, the language and everything. I don't know if it was Igbo or, or maybe Yoruba, or I don't know, but something, but there was still... the people in Matanzas and most of them, the, the next people that you're talking, maybe talking about, are, they're all Arara. Arara probably. Yeah. Okay. Well, I heard there was yeah. like a, like a tribe still living out there that had never, you know, adapted to, to this Western culture. And they were still like, you know, mm. speaking native and they were raising their children amongst themselves and everything. So that was pretty interesting. It's likely, it's likely, it's not yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so on her side, then, uh, sorry, on my mom's side, then her grand, her, her dad is a construction, uh, contractor. And then her mom is, uh, it's like eighth generation, seventh, seventh or eighth generation Chinese black. Okay. So Havana and yeah. I, she was, she basically, she tailored and did and made, made hats, etc. Okay. And I think with the revolution and the, the, the opportunities that were provided by the given government, then both of them became, uh, uh, educated. My dad went on to become a radio electronics engineer and an engineer. And then he became a doctor in engineering for the, you know, the Cuban Navy, Navy. And then my mom was an architect for the, the public health sector. Okay. Um, so I come from so growing up in Santa Suarez, you know, way, you know, the years later, I will be that one black kid who, you know, in my, in my blog, my parents will be probably the most educated people. And so I couldn't, even though I do come from their, their background was poor within, within this, you know, after post 1959, even post 1970 something, I could not claim other, nothing else but middle class so you mm -hmm. know, if you want to call it socialist middle class type of thing right which you know which was kind of like can you kind of try to paint a picture for it for the audience because it's difficult for people to understand you know kind of like what that was like um you know well, i mean it, it, I, I i could mean i think even within my family there's people who are basically higher up uh middle class but mm -hmm. i mean that i could but my parents would be the ones earning the most money in the okay. block yeah. or then my parents will be, you know, will be the ones who had both of them degrees in the same household, yeah. university degrees, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. we're basically, basically, you know, high, high, you know, highly educated and uh, leading into, uh, intellectuals and leading professionals in their okay. fields. This is this is what I mean, you know. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, you don't have. If, I'm not saying that this is particular to me. Santos Suarez was the mecca. I mean, we can go back and speak to Rosa Marchetti about. In, in which ways Santos Suarez was, was not continues to be a makeup for Afro-Cuban music. No doubt. And I, when I say this, I'm claiming this based on. Hey, hey. Right? So you, yo. Uh, no, we can't see it right now. It's green screened. There we go. There oh yeah, go. there it is. So she's cool. from Santos Suarez. Word up, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then I, I also remember that Moises Simon, the guy who wrote the peanut bender, lived in my block. His family lived in my block. Wow. That's crazy. So this is we get, So if we start making yeah, those yeah. connections, not only that, my the house that I my mom actually got from you know got, got to live uh, for us for us to live uh -huh. was the, the, the used to be the house for Marta Young Clark, the 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 Haitian artist or singer who lived yeah. in Cuba for many many years. Mm -hmm. So this is what we're talking. This is the no ferment of culture that Santos Suarez is, and actually the one that I come out of, right? Yeah, no, this sort of you know public public culture music. Um, yeah, so that's yeah. that's my background. Specifically, okay. I think I I need to go back to my grandfather on my dad's side 
to you know claim all all sense of Afro-Cuban aity or, or Afro-Cuban music coming from my house because he made the gourd to make chequeres at home. Okay. And, okay. Yeah. Right. So that's interesting, man. That's interesting. And, so, and then and then on my mom on my mom's side, her brother was a rumbero, Eduardo Ventia. Wow. Oh and wow. Come candela. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, man. The music. So, so very proper. artistic within the family already. You know? And yeah, and then my dad was the, my dad started my dad started guitar for seven okay. years, uh, so you know classic guitar. Yeah. So yeah, yeah man. So no doubt. This is kind of so. So talk to me a little about the beginnings of of hip hop coming into Cuba and how you lived that and how you felt that and how hip hop became a part of your life. I, I was actually writing about this. Uh, I mean, I, something I don't know what like my wife would probably say. Well, you need to. <laughs> send it out. But um, like talking about, I used to go to the parties in Santos Juarez with my friends on my blog, you know, Fofi, Fuchi. We used to go to these parties. There's Santos Juarez is full of, you know, blog parties and house parties. Yeah. And mostly before hip hop, it's like people li li listen to soul. We're, I'm not going to get into discussions of other, you know, music clubs, black music clubs across Savannah. Uh huh. Uh, but in Santo Suarez, there's a major craze of listening to from Estrid and Fire to Whisper to all the different music that was amazing, right? Okay. And most of this happened through listening to, and I, I need to shout out someone specifically, El, 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 El Mito. Mito. Mito is um, one of those major DJs that were actually from Santo Suarez, and he had some sort of a sound system. And he would basically put it out of the balcony, out of actually not the balcony, out of he would play it out of his living room. But he lived in a like you know it's a tenement, but it has several uh, stories, several yeah. floors. So uh -huh. he would be I think on the third floor, or the top floor, and he would keep his music loud, yeah. out, playing it out of his house, and then so people could hear it downstairs. His, his door, I, I lived on the corner of Zapote y Ureje, so uh -huh. my corner was basically, you know, would be basically in alignment, yeah, directly, yeah, yeah. directly listening. So he, the good thing about this, and I, we, we can go into that or maybe for another time, but uh, back then, uh, Mito was getting recordings on cassettes from FM radio stations, specifically 99 Gems. Right? How, how, do you know how he was getting those? How he was getting them? Listen, man, people had antennas. You had, yeah. a, you had the yeah. antenna, you, you get it made, and then you get the antenna, you get recordings, you get Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But 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 but, but, but I also come from the, the family where my my cousin Fidelito back in Parraga in early in, when I was like you know maybe a toddler or a little bit later, maybe five or six, seven, maybe he was listening to the W in Cuba, which is actually turned out later on to be uh, the Voice of the Americas uh, radio. And they would play, you know, Mr. Postman, right? So, and also with Mr. Postman being a hit, you also get all the black music that is actually being broadcast, of course, uh, to Cuba, right? Yeah. Uh, and then my cousin Munya, who I need to also shout out, his name is Rolando uh, Hernandez Herrera. Uh, Munya will be uh, picking up uh, top forty, uh, the, the top forty Casey Kasem show on AM. Since 1976. Wow. So this is this is people within my I guess my cousin, yeah. right? And and so with this culture of music, the other person that becomes an important is my aunt Consuelo, 
and how she would bring music with every time she came back to Cuba, she would have like this sort of cassettes and music. So I already have Mito in Santo Suarez playing music. So I, I'm up with it, all, all the new stuff, like, you know, from Dame Singren to, I forget this group. I think the group was ABC. They had a song called, it's like Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. It was like super amazing music that I could listen and like listen to my blog. But my, my, the one, the one person actually I had the closest connection to the song Rapper's Delight wow. was my aunt. She, she brought a tape from, from, from Spain. And okay. it had, it was the greatest hits that right. she brought. Okay, I brought, I brought this and then they had rappers. And like when I listened to it, I was like, oh my God. What is you were like, that's it right there. <laughs> this is it. This is, I've actually told the story elsewhere. Uh-huh. And it's just like, it's like this amazing song. So it was, it was incredible to um, listen to that. And then obviously find my friends in, in boarding school who had also listened to rappers the life, but not only that, one of them had the actual eighth wonder uh, uh, cassette. Which is the you know the the, the sophomore album after the rappers delight um, single I think okay they yeah, have yeah, showdown yeah eighth wonder these are like crazy tracks you're like what so there's people like like um, like Chuck D talks about the surprise if anyone would want to actually put none of that stuff on record and uh, uh, Grandmaster Flash and uh, talks about also like you know we never imagined it he's like I ne- I didn't see it I did not right. see that this would be possible. Right, right. But then Sylvia Robinson goes ahead and then she makes this record, and then we actually get introduced to hip hop. Uh-huh. But I, yeah, we get introduced to hip hop through Rappers Delight, which actually is a kind of like a complicated record because we know people have described as a disco record, but rapping on it. Right. Right. They they, they, they bit they, they bit cheeks, you know, the you know uh, uh, good times, Absolutely. right? And then they, they had these guys rapping stuff that had already been rapped by other people. Uh-huh. So it wasn't like even like the, even that original of a right. record, but it did contain all the the the, the character of hip hop culture, you know, yeah. borrowing that you know they they sort of their competitiveness. Like I did the yeah. first type of thing, so it was you know it was, it was incredible. No doubt. So what I was saying is that I'm, I imagine that my experience with hip hop must have been similar to people in Guantanamo, people in Guanabacoa, people yeah. in Dorado, you know, having you know this sort of bombardment, if you want to call it of the music being around in some ways, mostly through radio, right? AM or FM and having access to, you know, American popular music. They also had hip hop in it yeah. uh, whatever became the first hits, like, you know, rappers of light, et cetera, et cetera. So then, then you have also the, the, the Cuban government playing the music on TV, right? You had, you know, Colorama who would have like shows, you know, or other shows that have, you know, for example, Alejandro Zamora talks about how the Cuban government had them, you know, this sort of, I forget, this event has happened in South Africa where you two and the Zulu nation, Africa Bambara, were in South Africa. I forget this, I forget the name of that, that event. It's a major event that happened in South Africa a long time ago. Okay. Uh, so basically you, you see sort of just sort of sprinkles of, you know, the culture coming out uh, because it was already big and it was basically being broadcasted to the world. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, somehow I imagine that most people had access to it. I think the, the other big, big moment for the, 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 the distribution of hip hop culture in Cuba was uh, 1991 by American Games, where a lot, of, a lot of sports people came to Cuba with the music. So mm-hmm. all, the, all the American basketball players, all the American sort of you know, volleyball players and people who, athletes who came to Cuba to, to, to do, to participate in the American Games, they right. brought the music with them. 
yeah, yeah. But then on top of that, you, it, let's like, let's have, let's be the athletes in the actual moment. Let's just think about talk about those marineros, the sailors, the black sailors, the Mission Marine staff who would, you know, in returning to Cuba, traditionally they would be bringing all the music from Commodores to War to yeah. Gloria Gaynor, Donna Summer, and then they started bringing also hip hop as well, right? Yeah, so yeah. this is, you know, they, we can go into that, but yeah, so I think that this is sort of a, a you know, a, a very punctual uh, or specific way to understand, wow, how is it that hip hop got into Cuba? And then for me, later on, in, at, by the time I get to, you know, study at the University of Havana, I had already been studying uh, uh, some of the, you know, the culture, specifically language and words, because I was into this is my thing. I was, I, my first degree is in English uh, literature and, mm -hmm. and, and, and linguistics and originally translation and interpreting. Okay. And I was interested in basically understanding uh, how is it, you know, the, the new set of terms and the new slang that was coming out of the culture that was coming, yeah. basically coming, you know, street slang that was basically coming up with, with the culture. And then I was, uh, I think I was telling someone else recently, ah, Rebecca Bodenheimer, that um, there was there was words that would be, be used in in American rap slang or hip hop slang. They were that we also find in my neighborhood in Santos Juanes, which is crazy. That is crazy. So words, so words like coyote ugly. I don't know if you ever heard that. Yeah. And those were used in Santos Juanes, like you know, so and so is a coyote, you know. Yeah. So it's really crazy. So we, we talk, we can talk about this is like, this is the madness yeah. of the Afro, the African diaspora. But we, yeah, we that's what I was going to say. That. This is kind of where the diaspora connects and where actually we see that, you know, they, that's, this is where we see that hip hop is, a, is an African culture, is a culture of the diaspora, of people of African descent. You know what I'm saying? So mm. let's, you know, so we're, we're talking, we're in Cuba now, okay? We're in Cuba in the, like the, we're in the 90s maybe throughout like the, the special period, okay? Like mm. special hits. And now, to, just so that the listeners understand, when hip hop begins in Cuba, it's not like what it is today. Like it is, it's a very Afro-centered, right? Very Afro-centered culture, just like it was in, in the States when it begins, right? So we're talking about, you know- I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm not sure it was completely that when it first started in Havana. Uh, I would I would differ a little bit. I would say that okay. it was just some people. Where everyone was basically, you know, into it because it was the the latest thing. But obviously, there was like some black elements that were blacker, and yeah. they were basically taken on by black by black youth in Havana, like the dancing. Okay. Uh, but you could say that you know, from Combate Directo to the, all these different sort of white guy groups that were already in Havana, already well. a part of it. Okay, you know so, what I mean? They're, they're yeah, since yeah, the no doubt. Actually, if if you think about, forget his dancing guys. It, one of the one of Havana's most prominent dancers. He's a white kid, okay, not yeah. not that. So so you know. So we, we need to sort of take them on. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about Cuerpo Roto. I'm talking about the guys who actually were started doing uh, break dancing. Forget okay. his name now. Yeah yeah okay okay I hear you. Okay so you know so wait that's that's one interesting thing. Did uh break dancing came in first before people started rapping right? Oh yeah big yeah. time. So yeah, people were being yeah here. so. Yeah, so people were b-boying, but this is what I'm saying. The, what, the kind of stuff that I was talking about in Santos Suarez with Carlitos mm -hmm. and guys from Montanamo coming from one, people, dancers or mm -hmm. breakers who will come from Montanamo and knew the moves as much as people in Havana. You're like, how do you know? It's like, well, I have right. the naval base right, right, right next to me. So I of got all, yeah. all the videos 
where you guys in Havana need to have a UF, UHF uh, antenna to be able to watch Soul Train or watch uh, you know, American Bandstrand or whatever. Yeah. I have it all right there next to, next to us in Montana base, right? Um, and so, but, but then again, the culture in, that we're talking about in Santos Juarez is a culture of Travolta, which is something that people never talk about, uh -huh. which is actually music or dance styles that come out of the disco era in mm -hmm. Havana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Specifically, Travolta. We, you know, we, know, we need to talk about. You know, uh, I forget it's Five Night Life or Saturday Night, Night Fever. That movie with with John Travolta's in it. Yeah, with John. His name is used as a style uh, to name a style of, of the style of dancing in Havana. It came prior to that to to, to, to break dancing. The one thing that leads to break dancing, Carlitos from Coco and those guys dancing in Santos Juarez is Travolta, right? Yeah. Um, so, so we need to sort of make sure that we don't, we understand that the culture came first through the dancing and then yeah, they came MCing yeah, yeah. and then, you know, DJing and then producing, you know, yeah, yeah. so yeah, yeah DJ so, is actually, DJing yeah. is actually the one thing that may have actually been there in a soul, in a soul sort of Cuban, Cuban format based on resources that people had because people didn't really have access to turntables to do, do two turntables. They had yeah, access absolutely. to one turntable yeah. and then they could record some vinyl, but most people had cassettes right yeah yeah okay yeah so, no doubt, be, no doubt. so people like emito people like alberto p people like like alberto jimenez chacon people like Dandel from piragua people like those guys those, yeah. those guys use cassettes so there's a whole culture of cassette use yeah if you yeah. want to go back even the people from from the from the the soul and jazz clubs in santa malia and barrio azul yeah those guys had cassettes yeah. and what they listened when they when they had the clubs listening to uh, to you know, the, you know the club of soul, the club of jazz, for sure. those guys, you know, yeah. uh, that's all cassette yeah. uh, DJ, right? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Even when when I started recording, we were still you know we were on cassettes, so we had to you know we had to kind of try to record the whole track. You couldn't mess up, you know. You were on the cassette, and if you messed up, you had to start all the way from. You had to beginning. start all over again, man. So you had all to wrap. You really had to Not go through. That. Not even that. When you actually, I, I would go with my aunt to the beach, my, and this was my aunt's stereo, yeah. and I was basically well, I don't even know. It was like 1970 something, so I'm like really young. I'm with my cousins. This is their stereo. I'm not supposed to touch it, right? Right. But I'm like, I need to record this stuff. Like, I'm, how am I going to do it? So here I am, sitting there, not going to the water, waiting huh. for the sun to come on because huh. I want to be. I know that this is on rotation, so it's gonna, they're going to play that song again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm sitting there, like, Barito, you eat, eat some food or something. I'm like just sitting here waiting for the music to go on again. So, <laughs> and then obviously, if I have a chance, be able to record it as well. So I think something important about this issue of the mechanics of being able to listen to music and capture it, record it, yeah. uh, came also with the, you know, the, the issue of being at my aunt's house with her stereo that she brought from, from Europe in, uh -huh. the, 19, in the late, late 19, 1970s. It was like, no one had a stereo like that. And I'm oh. sitting there in front, of the, in front of the stereo, rewinding, and, and she's like, you cannot do that to that. Like, you need to get out of that corner and stop touching. Right, right, right. <laughs> you see what I mean? So right, no it is, it's funny. Yeah, yeah, right. for sure. So, okay, so as far as the MCs, right, when the MC started in Cuba, a lot of what we were talking about, you know, a lot of what they were talking about at the time was what Black people were going through. You know, sometimes they would get a lot into racism, they would get a lot into... Uh, the police, right? What, the, how, how they were treated like, mm. in everyday yeah, life? Yeah, again, again, right off, we need to continue. Go back to 
like before before you like rise Adobaz and Esquina and before um even when Primera Base records Iwat Ketu in 1996, mm -hmm. right? Um, which are actually Afro-centric, Afro Afro-conscious or, or you know, right. Black-centric, you know, Black-conscious songs. Mm -hmm. um, there's this aspect of mimetism that we need to address, which is the people were repeating what they were seeing. The Afrocentricity yeah. that we were sharing yeah. in our yeah. songs in, in that Cubano was basically repeating the pattern that was coming out of you know the message yeah yeah out of those songs obviously the message is much yeah, no older. it's like no, no 1982 but um but we need to we need to understand that even even though even all those music we're still not addressing the cuban the cuban you know cuba's racism in cuban terms so afro-cuban terms so okay right? when when do you think that started though when do you I, think i i mean i mean definitely you can definitely say you know i i will correct you know what i have said before that i would say i would say igual que tu is probably perhaps the first song that addresses the issue of racism directly. Okay, yeah. Uh, with 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 you know Primera Vases or or Ruben Ruben Marin's affiliation or aligning himself with Malcolm, right? Yeah, no doubt. Um, but I think that the, I would say in, in 1996, 1990, 1996, uh, uh, Achabón Cruzado by Joel Pando then becomes the song that addresses the issue of racism yeah. and, and racial and racial mixture and mestizaje and mm -hmm. being not even black or white, which is something that it has to do with the, you know, the, the matter of Cuba and Cuban society. This issue of not being black and white, which actually is problematic. It's, it's the, yeah, because colorism that, that comes in. Colorism yeah, yeah, that will, comes in and, you know. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, like, it's, a, it's perhaps the first song that actually addresses the issue of racism in Cuba yeah. in, in Cuban terms. Yeah. Um, I'm not taking away nothing from, the, from you know, Igual Que Tu, but Iwaka too has the issue that they, you know, I mean, we, I don't have to go into that. It has some issues that it basically addresses the, sure. the issue of blackness from a perspective that basically is distorted based on what you actually hear on the radio. Mm -hmm. uh, so specifically the fact that uh, he uses the N-word to refer to that he wants to be an N-word like Malcolm. Right, and he's right. like, well, I know African-Americans, this is what we remember, you know, Bort Stiff was in Havana at a show and there was, you know, Primera Vase, I mean, I saw all the people performing and then when Primera Vase came on, there was all these people from California there and also some some expats that lived in Cuba, and lived in Havana. And when they heard, it was like, okay, this, these guys are talking about Malcolm, but like, wait a minute, you, you cannot use the same, you cannot use, talk about Malcolm and then use yeah. the N-word in the same, in the same sentence. Yeah, because there's a disconnect with the language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so I think that this will be the problematic part about this issue of limitism where you're repeating what you have, what, yeah. what you hear, but you're not really addressing it with your own terms. That is what happens later on. No doubt. Without, no doubt. With, you know, from Ashabon Kusado onwards. And, but, but I do feel like the way, the way it connected or the reason it connected so much partially was because of this African diaspora thing I said that, that I think that we share, you know, like even though the African-Americans were living there, <clears throat> the way they were living there, their lives and their oppression and everything that was going on over there was very different from what we were living from what Afro, what Afro Cubans were living in Cuba. Mm. There was still a connection there, you know. There was still a connection, oh, for sure. you know. And I for feel sure, like, for sure, for sure. you know, and I feel like that's that's what made it that's what made it so relatable. That's what made hip hop, you know, so so natural to us, you know. So I think I think yeah. I mean, I, how I have I mean, well, this is something that I'm talking about, and this thing that I'm trying to write to write talk about uh, for this hip hop 50th anniversary. And this issue that I, what I'm saying is that uh, a lot of the reason why we're so keen to be to 
to be part of the culture is because we were born to be the culture, right? No doubt. This is, there's no, it's not the American sent it, African American sent it to us and we somehow caught it and like, oh, who received it? Because it, it's like seeing, seeing this continuing to see hip hop as something that's hierarchical. We can get into hierarchies within hip hop and royalties, et cetera, et cetera, but you have to see it as a wave that has multiple flanks mm -hmm. and it's coming out of the diaspora itself. It's not just something that happens only, I mean, otherwise you wouldn't have instincto not knowing any English, we're performing. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't have Pando being Karake, you know, in, in Havana, and then somehow becoming the best rapper in Cuba. How is it just by imitation? How do you become hip hop if you're not if you're not hip hop yourself? Exactly. Yep. Yep. Uh -huh. Right. So, um, and then I'm actually making making you know making the the case of how that press when they were in Havana, and they perform uh, is bigger than hip hop. They had this. They had this live show with all this sort of like lots of you know images of black people and sort of get free, yeah, uh, fight for your freedom situations, mm -hmm. right? And how in the impact of that for people in groups like Alonso Mokosejo, groups like you know uh, like Junior Clan, yeah. me, you know, Amana Gauss, and all like the crazy impact. But what we actually failed to see in the, in the case of the press, they came in two thousand and one. That means that. Common Sense had already been in Cuba. That means that Black Star and M1 had already been in Cuba in 1998. Right. And Erica had been to Cuba kind of sideways a little bit uh, through Common, because I think they were dating back then. And so what we actually failed to see is that what brings them to Cuba is not that they're coming to perform, it's that the wave is also starting in Havana. It's, it's also coming out of Havana, right? So they come to witness the wave from a different angle Right. The way that brought them to Cuba comes from also in a different angle. And I think the best way to explain it is, I don't know if you know the work of just a guy named Jarvis Givens. Uh, he's a professor at, of education at Harvard. He talks about the work of Carter G. Woodson. You know Carter G. Woodson? Yeah, yeah, of course. So obviously Carter G. Woodson talks about fugitive pedagogy, right? And, and just teaching, just teaching these tools that you get while you're in the classroom, you're reading something else. That's not what you're being taught by the well, professor. So in, in a sense, what I'm trying to say is that we must apply this idea of fugitive education, of fugitive pedagogy, the tools that come with it. There actually are mostly sensorial, mostly nonverbal tools about freedom uh, and about the practice of freedom. Mm. The common in the grain of hip hop, even in a song like Rappers Delight. Right? So even, yeah. you know, as, as a product, as fraught as, as Rappers Delight, has the culture and those tools in it. Mm -hmm. So when you when you when it gets to Havana, you're like, wait, I, I understand exactly. I don't need to understand the English. Mm. I get I'm, as a black person, I get the message. I don't I don't you don't need to translate it. I get I get you. Yeah, you know what yeah, I, mean? I feel you. I feel you. That's a... exactly. Yeah. I feel you. That's the right word. So yeah. so so it, so I, I think that this is we need to see hip hop as that you know, as a yeah, hip hop culture as mm -hmm. uh, access to those tools to, mm -hmm. you know for the practice of freedom and contesting power, right? Mm -hmm. um, that I think this is really what hip hop is about. And it's exactly. about waking up or actually, you know, creating a, a, this sort of network of, of connections where when Dilla, you know, in survival tests, he has it, how you feel out there. That question is not for Detroit only. Right. Right. That question is not for New York. That question is not just for LA. That question is also for Havana. Of course. Right. That yeah. question is also for, you know, Mogadishu. Questions, the question is for, you know, 
So with the, the question is, you know, and, and, then, and then those other areas and locales reply mm-hmm. with our own form. Yeah. Now, the problem here is that because of, you know, because of power, people in the United States tend to not see or not be ready to receive the reply. You get what I mean? Yeah, of course. Or not be able to recognize the reply mm. and acknowledge it mm. and value it, right? Mm. Because you come with, when you when you show up in Havana, which is the case of the roots, and I have to say it, uh, members of the roots, you know, in Havana, being touring, you know, at the time the roots is, is touring, doing you know, two hundred and something concerts a year, which is an incredible amount of concerts. They arrive right. in Havana and they behave in Havana like they are in Paris. Okay, yeah, they didn't like they, didn't they are in, like that. They, they don't. I don't think they. I think. I think Tariq, I think they're not Tariq, I think, I think, um, yeah, um, Tariq Quest? got it. Questlove got it, I'm sure he got it. Okay. But I'm, I'm sure, I believe other members of the crew may have not gotten it. Okay. If you start screaming, where's the bathroom? In, in the middle of, like, you just, like, you lose it, where you can actually ask people, where's the bathroom? And you can be led to the bathroom. Mm. And I think he knows who I'm talking about. He knows himself. If he gets to, I don't think he gets to see the show. And Hopefully he does. <laughs> Uh, it's not, it's not, it's not Questlove. I'm talking about another member of the band. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Misbehaving in Havana means you don't. Not only that, we've talked about this. That press missing the, the the possibility of being on national television in Cuba. Oh yeah. Yeah, missing it because they were tired. Okay. If you're bringing dollars in New York City, on stage, you get to Havana and you don't go to national television. Yeah. You know the process of being within the United States and the culture there, I, I understand that there's many, many, many uh, dynamics. But something that we can critique is the fact that you can you cannot see horizontally. And hip hop is about seeing and speaking horizontally. Yeah. Right? And then if you, if you fail to recognize the reply and fail to recognize the other flanks of that wave that you started or that you actually are part of, mm. how can we talk about Panafer Pan-Africanism, how can we talk about, you know, uh, you know, we follow, you know, the, the work of, you know, uh, W.E. Du Bois. Exactly. We're talking, yeah, yeah. we're talking about, we're talking about, this is not, like, this is not about, about, you know, about. It has to be a two-way, two-way conversation. We have to be able to understand each it, other. It has always been a two-way conversation. Yeah. It's never been the just uppercase conversations only. And then if you're lowercase. No. You know, if you're not, if you're not, the, if you're not part of the, the talent, the 10th, then you're not. That's not what, that's not started. That's not hip-hop. No, no, but, but wait, Pan-Africanism started with the talent of the 10th, you know? Well, yeah. Pan-Africanism... Sorry. It, but it, it's, I mean, it's at, a, at least the practice of it, some of it started, I mean, I'm sure I probably mistake. People will say, well, talking about, you know, Booker T. Washington, we're talking about Marcus Garvey, yeah. and all their iterations of Pan-Africanism. I'm sure that we can talk about lower case, actually, black folks. Well, yeah, because yeah. it's, a movement, it's right? a movement for the bottom. Like, I mean, you know, a lot of, most, most Pan-Africanist historians, and I agree with this, we'll tell you that Pan-Africanism started when the first brother that, that rebelled or, or, or maybe, maybe the Haitian Revolution. You know what I mean? The Haitian Revolution mm. is like the first act of Pan-Africanism. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. So, so you know what I mean? But yeah, that's a, that's a whole nother discussion too. <laughs> we, can, we can get into it, no problem. We can get into it. But, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, for but sure. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, I just wanted to play sort of some nuggets of criticism to um, some perspectives that actually have been um, damning and damaging to 
you know, I and I also praise the work of Black Hoggers bringing the culture. And yeah, that's, I wanted to, to get you know, into that a little bit. Participate, participate, and you know, facilitate resources and yeah. amazing stuff. But at the same time, it, in other angles, it, it, because all of it is, if it is a horizontal effort, it can not only be just a group of people only. It needs to be all of us, right? Well, of course. At least most people. Of course. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's um, that's something. I think I'm, I'm going to try to jump into, let's let's jump to, I think Black Hogwarts was important, uh, yeah. specifically with, with this highlight of, um, you know, uh, you know, Afrocentric perspectives in Africa, you know, um, um, yeah, Afrocentric perspectives, uh, you know, in, in politicizing, politicization of hip hop in Cuba, especially Black hip hop. Um, it met, it met, um, it met a match, not because like Jeff Baker talks about, they imported race conversations and race discussions, so it's just racing to Cuba. It's just that we were actually in the midst of figuring out that main problem ourselves. So it's like, oh, I, can, I see that these are the tools. I can use those tools to engage the problem that I see here with mm -hmm. myself, the police stopping me in the street. So it's not just something that came out of you know, we we in Havana had our own issues, right? So, Absolutely. And and you know you know and, and that's where I feel to, like sometimes there was also somewhat of a somewhat of a political uh, somewhat of a political disconnect, you know. What do you mean? I mean, like you know, I feel like sometimes it still happens today. You know, there might be a political disconnect where certain black people from mainly from the United States or other places come to Cuba with a specific political idea. You know what I'm saying in their head. Because, agenda. It's called agenda. It's an agenda. <laughs> right. Because you know we we understand that you know the United States is the belly of the beast. You know, so they're living what they're living over there. Okay. So once mm -hmm. once they come to Cuba, they see Cuba as a, a paradise due to the revolution, right? Mm -hmm. And so sometimes, you know, there's certain harsh realities that our people, you know, that people of African descent in Cuba are living that these people don't necessarily understand. You know. Mm. Or they don't want yeah. to face, or they don't want, or they want to act like they don't understand, or they want to act because I, I, they have the idealism of the Cuban Revolution. Well, yeah, but important here with the Cuban Revolution, and and I think that for a lot of people, including African Americans and people, you know, oppressed people across the world, right? And uh, you know, we, we talk about the Lone Line Movement, the Bandung Conference, etc., and etc., and etc. The reality and the accomplishment of the Cuban Revolution is something that's of, of the utmost importance because it's something they had not done before mm -hmm. and, I, and it had not happened clearly before. The right. Vietnam War happens, you know, they, they, it happens after 1959. Yeah. Right? yeah. I'm, I'm not claiming any, any special uh, uh, exceptionalism to Cuba, but no, no, Cuba no. becomes that symbol of the first no sort of, like no Haiti. The first sort of you know revolution yeah. that becomes then Without a, a successful attempt at reading yourself out of the grasp of American imperialism. Mm -hmm. So when we think, when people think and, and sink through it, and specifically I'm talking about Caribbean people like Walter Rodney and other Caribbean scholars, uh, Brian Meeks, etc., who have actually seen Cuba as like this mecca or this sort of am yeah. amazing issue. Yeah. Uh, what they don't see is that Fidel Castro does not symbolize black people in Cuba or, or our struggle. Right? Absolutely. So yeah, the revolution did give my parents and, and my generation a lot, yeah. but then they didn't, they, they, they were, they brought, their agenda was not to solve the issue of racism or anti-blackness that's in the grain of Cuban culture, right? Yeah. 
So when we get to the point where, we, where the country falls into an economic crisis and we go all the way back to, you know, 1912. Yeah, our at the bottom, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, the idea of the bottom, we can, we can talk about Taliban, but if we, if we, the, the, the actual tipping, uh, it's already been there, that, that, that the possibility is that in 1959 and the possibility that Cuba will be a horizontal, non-racial society was, was again, you know, posted post by Guillen Stengel poem, right? 1964. Yeah. Let's see. He says, vamos a ver. Let's see if this happens. Right. It seems like, well, you know, now, now it's all, it's all going to be good. Yo, that, yo, so, when the revolution happened, <laughs> how is it that, how is it that Walter Rodney talks about Cuba and he's like, yo, we need to Jamaica, you know, but we, they failed to see that the revolution was, was not really addressing the issue of blackness. We, you know, there's the book by, by several books, but I think I will, I will read out and talk about the Mark I, Sawyer's book. Yeah. I think and, by, and, by default, it helped us. It helped our people by default. No, for sure. I mean, for sure. It helped yeah. a lot of people. It helped it, our people it, without it, a doubt. Yeah, but, but it wasn't only, it wasn't, it wasn't only to help all of us. It helped Vietnamese people. It helped people in Nicaragua. No it doubt. helped people in Argentina. It helped because it was a, the one successful anti-imperialist effort, right? That yeah. actually did happen. For sure. But the, the, in the in the core of it, you know, the actual revolution, human revolution is not, it's actually a, a, a sovereign and independence movement, right? Mm -hmm. This is what they're really about. It's about being an independent, being able to do whatever you want with your country without right. having any big power deciding for you. Right. That does not mean that this is about black people or mm -hmm. about Afro-Cubans yeah, yeah. and our struggle and our issues, right? Yeah. And so without just going too far, um, this idea of this sort of balance that starts with the with the, you know, the idea that Cuba could be a non-racial society after 1959 and Guy's poem in 1964, we have in 2001, Emmanuel Causa revisit Guillen to say, well, Tango, 2001, I cannot go into hotels. Absolutely. Police stopping me. Absolutely. What's going on? That's a reality that, yeah. So, 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 so the Afro-Cuban rap becomes this, this very, this specific site of the poetics of protest, mm -hmm. it's, it's perhaps the best way to tread or find what happens, right? And we, we, I don't know if we, I mean, how much time we have. I mean, I mean, we can, you know, following Manos de Causa as Tango in 2001, we can go directly back to not only the many other Tango's that have been written, we can go straight back to 2019 when Wow Poppy and Poppy La Moda, the Pato rappers. Okay. Because this is also Afro Cuban rap. Yeah. The Pacto rappers in 2019, they revisit Tango and they're saying, I don't need y'all to help me. I got my, I got, got my Louis Vuitton. I got my, I got all the shoes and everything I need. I don't need y'all to help me. I'm not waiting for y'all to let me get into the hotel anymore. Mm. Okay. Do you want to do a book recommendation? Did you have one? Book or? recommendations. Book recommendations. I will start with, like I said, look him up. Mark Hughes Sawyer. Okay. Uh, and Teresa's Cuba, Devin Benson. I will have the links uh, of the... Look up, but then look up Tanya Saunders' Cuban uh, hip-hop uh, underground movement. This okay. is 2015. Look, uh, Mark Mark Perry's Soy, okay. Soy Negro Soy Yo. And then I highly recommend looking for Professor Ada Ferrer's Cuba and American History. Yeah? Okay. Okay. Um, there's many, there's, you know, you can talk about the work of, you know, Odette Casamayor, 
you can talk about you know so many different people i i would highly recommend reading again and then revisiting um revisiting the black documents by clr james absolutely absolutely the one the, you know the edition of 1963 read the appendix where it mm. says cuba is no, page 411 <laughs> Page 411, the Black, the Black Dagobin says, Cuba is the most West Indian island in the West Indies. So, wow. And we're just waking up to be to the Caribbean, right? So that means that we're probably, I mean, we need to understand that we're the biggest island in the Caribbean. Okay. And, uh, you know, whatever is happening in Cuba has already been happening. I think we need to follow okay. the examples of Black people. If we want to actually understand some of the stuff, we need to read David Scott. Um, and, to, you know, specifically, wait a minute, his discussion of, you know, his desires of, you know, what could happen uh, in Jamaica with socialism, uh, with, my, with the Mali administration, and his frustration that that didn't happen. And we should think also about the case of Guyana and socialism, Guyana, and socialism in Grenada with Morris Bishop, and how Cuba is part of that, right, that kind of um, conversation. But yeah, man. Um, I appreciate you, man. Thank you very much. I'm going to have uh, some info down and uh, hopefully we'll have you back, man, on the Vital Hoops podcast. Thank you, brother. Peace. Salute, man. Peace. Yeah, peace. All right, all right. Part two of this three-part series is in the books celebrating 50 years of hip-hop. This was Cuban hip-hop with the brother Pablo Herrera. Again, much respect to Pablo Herrera. Thank you very much for being on the show. And thank you, the listeners, for checking us out. You know what I'm saying? Please, this is a listeners sponsored podcast. You know what I'm saying? I'm not asking you to send us money. All I'm asking you to do is if you appreciated some of it or all of it, please share it. Share it with your friends, share it with your enemies. You know what I'm saying? Subscribe to the podcast. You know, you can even hit us up, bottlehoopspodcast at gmail.com if you have any suggestions, any any things you would like to see on the show, any guests. You know what I mean? And um we are on social media at Vital Hoops Podcast. Um you can definitely go to vitalhoops.net and see what we got going on. Uh, but Pablo Herrera had, you know, a lot of jewels. You know what I mean? So make sure you listen to it again. Okay, I'm going to have some important links. You know, Pablo recommended a lot of good books. I'm going to put a, a couple there, a couple book recommendations were, are going to be down in the description as always. Also, I will have some, some videos, some Cuban hip-hop videos on there. Um, a few that, that that Pablo Herrera produced, you know what I'm saying, that I feel like are very key, um, important when we're talking about Cuban hip hop history, you know what I mean? And I will also, um, I might have a, a, a couple from my group, 340MS, you know what I'm saying? Uh, we give thanks to those who came before us, you know what I'm saying? We're inspired, you know, by Pablo Herrera and all those, those great artists that he worked with um, before we came through and, uh, and they're still working, you know what I'm saying? A lot of them are my brothers and my comrades. So shout out, once again, like I said, shout out to everybody who is involved in hip hop culture, no matter where you at, in a positive way, not the, not the, not the culture vultures, you know? Shout out to the people who live the culture, shout out to the people who support the culture. And um, yeah, I appreciate you all. Bottle Hoops is for the culture. Peace. <laughs>